Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too. Like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Good evening, children of the night. As promised, I have some updates to share with you. So, we're going to take a little break from our tour this week, but we should be back on the road soon. First, I'd like to introduce you to our new associate editor, Peter Morsellino. Pete is an aspiring writer, editor, and crafter. Based in sunny upstate New York, Pete spends his days making things from words and wood. He's already been hard at work behind the scenes, learning the ropes and helping our editor, Seth Williams, to keep the frights flowing freely to your ears. Welcome, Pete. We're excited to have you on board. So, remember last week when I mentioned that Tales to Terrify was up for sale? Tony Smith, the owner and founder of our parent network, the District of Wonders, put out a call for interested buyers, and the support has been nothing short of astounding. I'm pretty sure I speak for more than myself when I say that over the seven years we've been around, Tales to Terrify has come to mean a lot to me. Long before I was brought on as an editor, before I even had the chance to lend my voice to a narration, Tales to Terrify was one of my regular weekly listens. It personally helped me through some tough times. Its dark tales were always produced with a sense of real heart, and they reminded me that, hey, Maybe life isn't so bad. After all, I haven't been tricked into summoning any malevolent demons, or been possessed by vengeful spirits, or had giant venomous space spiders lay eggs in my brain. Well, children of the night, I'm proud to announce that yours truly is officially the new owner of Tales to Terrify. After more than seven years as part of the District of Wonders, Tales to Terrify is officially going it alone. 
leaving the safety of the group, like a horror movie cliché, and running solo through the darkened, monster-infested forest. Is it terrifying? Hells yes it is. But I love what we do, and I can't imagine any greater honor than holding that flashlight and sprinting down those darkened forest pathways with all of you. Tony, the District of Wonders, Larry and Stephen, everyone who's come before and helped make this podcast what it is today, and especially to you, our listeners, who make this all possible and oh so worthwhile. Thank you from the very bottom of my cold, dead, blackened heart for making this opportunity possible. So, you might be wondering what this actually means for you, our listeners. Well, we've got some things to iron out in the coming weeks, so if there are any hiccups, I'll ask now for forgiveness. The heart of who we are, though, and why we do this, will not change. The style of Tales to Terrify will stay more or less the same. But my hope is, as our support base grows, we'll be able to keep improving the quality and the quantity of what we bring you each week. The most terrifying of tales, professionally produced and piped straight into your ears. And bonus content to fill those in-between hours when you're sleeping maybe just a little too well. Long-term goals, maybe, but goals you, our listeners, can help us achieve. So what can you do to be a part of it? To help influence the direction and future of Tales to Terrify? As with any volunteer-run creative project, it won't surprise you, the little financial support helps an incredible amount. I'll be launching a Kickstarter in the coming weeks to help us with the assets and equipment we need to take Tales to Terrify to the next level and make sure we're well set up to keep bringing you dark tales for the foreseeable future. Even more valuable, maybe, is a regular contribution through our new Patreon page. This helps us get the best quality writers and stories to share with you, helps with the costs of producing and hosting the show, and hopefully will allow us to pay our volunteer narrators and staff, too. If you're already a Patreon supporter, make sure to switch to our new Patreon account at patreon.com slash tales to terrify. That ensures 100% of your contribution goes to making Tales to Terrify its frightful best. Now, if opening your wallet just isn't in the cards, or maybe even if it is, there are other ways you can help, too. If you've ever thought there was something missing from Tales to Terrify, or felt there was something we could do a little bit better, maybe there are even things you love that you'd like to hear more of. I want to know. My goal is to make this a podcast worth a coveted spot on your weekly subscription list. You have my full attention, children of the night, and I promise to make it worth your while. Share your thoughts with us via email at talestoterrify at gmail.com or on Facebook or Twitter at Tales to Terrify. I sincerely hope you're as excited about this as I am. Together we'll make this next chapter of Tales to Terrify the most deliciously frightful yet. Alright, that's more than enough news for one week. Let's get you what you came for. Some fiction. Our first story of the evening comes from Jeremy Saul. Jeremy Saul was born in 1995 and was raised by wild dingoes. 
He writes about galactic nightmares, widescreen futures, and characters fighting for hope in dark worlds. He is author of the dark space opera novel Stormblood, forthcoming from Golance in February 2020. His short fiction has appeared in Nature, Abyss and Apex, Lightspeed, Strange Horizons, Tor.com, and The Drabblecast. He is also the fiction editor for the Hugo-winning Starship Sofa, and carves out a living in sun-bleached Sydney, Australia. He loves watching weird movies, collecting boutique gins, exploring cities, and dark humor. Find him at jeremysall.com or on social media at jeremysall. Join me, children of the night, for Jeremy Saul's What the Darkness Asks in Return. Oh, Brandon, calls Jake, doing that thing where he emphasizes the last part of my name as done. You gonna do this again? I'm breathing hard as I back away through the attic of our house, my stepbrother's voice chasing me into the smoky darkness. I almost trip over the old woodcutter's axe that used to be my father's back when he was alive. Its sharp, glaring edge and the things that it can do to a person's body makes my hands tremble. But not as much as my brother. Jake chuckles as he creeps up the stairs. He stinks of the booze he's been drinking ever since he turned 16. It's always worse when he's drunk. He doesn't know when to stop. The longer you wait, the worse it gets, tuts Jake. He knows I don't talk anymore. Talking back always makes it worse. Makes him hit and kick and cut and slice harder. So I'm silent when he tells me I deserve this. With his degrading words filling my head and bruises and wounds plastering my body, I sometimes believe him. That same voice floating up the attic makes my 13-year-old heart thud like a rabbit's. But it doesn't scare me like it once did. Not since I discovered the door. I tug the pleated drapes back to reveal a door of plain, mouldy timber that looks like any old door in any old house. The icy dread clamped around my ribs thaws as I rub my fingers against the splintery wood and drag its smoky smell into my heaving lungs. I remember listening to my father's stories before I went to bed. He'd put his glasses away, the ones he wore to the weird, super-secret lab where he worked, and told me about his research. Doors that led to other places in space. And we have one upstairs, he'd say, with a strange little smile. I'd roll my eyes, but he insisted. Our little secret. And then he placed his hands on my shoulders, and his face grew serious. But you can never go inside. Never. Do you understand? But his words lose meaning as Jake approaches and the stink of the alcohol claws at my nose. Don't you think about slipping away now, he coughs. And then, in a lower voice, 
Stupid little retard. The ends of my fingers feel like they're filled with wet stones. I open the door and slip into blackness deeper than oceans. I feel its presence as soon as it feels mine. My body goes numb and tingly, like the ointment Jake rubs onto me when he's had his fun to hide the bloody wounds. The rough edge of the door rubs against my back, but I know the other side has vanished. I tested it by filming it once. It only has the strength to hold one person, so when I enter, the door merges with the wood, like a chameleon hiding from a predator. I see a bruise-coloured sky peppered with shining stars, distant as freedom. I'm in a different world now. The air tastes sour and sweat starts to crystallise on my skin. Pocket trips, I heard father say over the phone before I snuck into his office and read the e-documents when he wasn't looking. Tiny spaces ripped apart by solar forces to create a hidden vacuum, the papers said. Somewhere you can't get normally, like an air bubble frozen under the sea. And in these tiny rips, Jake can't hurt me. An ethereal wind tugs at my body. There's a faint, layered voice echoing in my head. Something is taking parts of me, peeling me away. Every time I enter, I come out less afraid of Jake. But the world seems to become a little less bright, like a monitor with the colour turned down. Even food doesn't taste as good. It's taking too much. I can feel bits of myself dissolving like sand between my fingers. But a million kilometres away, echoing across worlds through the thin panelling of this door, my stepbrother is promising awful, awful things like he always does when he's going to give it to me bad. I try to hold pieces of myself back, like father would have wanted. But there's so much being tugged away, I can't hold it all back. I can't hear Jake anymore. I swallow a mouthful of sour saliva. Is he gone? I slip back into the musty attic with Jake's heavy footsteps trampling down the creaking steps. When I find you, you're dead, he slurs. My body wants me to be afraid, but my mind does not. Did my father warn me about this? All of a sudden, I can't remember his face. I'm cold like I always am when Jake is finished with me. But it's a different kind of cold. I scoop up my father's woodcutter axe. The sharp edge has lost its sinister glare, and the wooden shaft seems to mould into my firm, steady hand. I croak with a voice I don't recognise. Not if I find you first. That was Jeremy Saul's What the Darkness Asks in Return, as read by Dan Raybarts. Dan Raybarts is a New Zealand author, editor, and podcast narrator. 
winner of four Sir Julius Vogel Awards and two Australian Shadows Awards. Occasional sailor of sailing things, part-time metalhead, and father of two wee miracles in a house on a hill under the southern sun. His science fiction, dark fantasy, and horror short stories have been published in venues such as Beneath Ceaseless Skies and The Mammoth Book of Dieselpunk. Together with Lee Murray, he co-edited the award-winning anthologies Baby Teeth, Bite-Sized Tales of Terror, and At the Edge, and co-writes the Path of Ra series, including the award-winning Hounds of the Underworld and its sequel Teeth of the Wolf. His first solo novel, Brothers of the Knife, kicks off the grim-dark yet madcap Children of Bane fantasy series, with the second book, Sons of the Curse, due out soon. Thank you, Dan. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Our second story comes to us from Robin Braid. Robin Braid is a freelance writer of stories of the mysterious and the macabre. A resident of Fife, Scotland, where he was born and raised, he graduated from Dundee University with a degree in English literature. When he's not working his regular job, he can often be found rambling over hills and glens in search of inspiration for further Fordian tales. You can say hi to Robin at his Twitter page. Link is in the show notes. Children of the Night, join me for Robin Braid's The Hill, a Tales to Terrify original. Dan knew he was pedalling, but he wasn't sure it was making him go any faster. His feet simply spun in a frenzy as he lowered his head and squinted to distinguish any form of path through the darkness. If a cry came from the undergrowth around him, all he dare focus on were his hands clamped around the handlebars. 
his bone-white knuckles two dim guiding lights in this intense blackness. Got to keep them straight. Got to keep it together, he told himself. I can't believe this is happening. How the hell is this happening? I'm not sure sausage rolls count as energy food, said Lisa, and slapped softly at Freddy's wrists. Well, I like them, Freddy snatched up to you from the fridge before turning back up the aisle. Crisps, he said, and walked off with Lisa trailing behind. Up at the counter, Dan had paid for his bottle of water and was rushed aside as Tony deposited a clattering shower of items onto the hard wooden counter. Just this lot, my man. The shopkeeper sifted through the items slowly, scanning each one with robotic movements. Tony shouted over his shoulder to Dan, who was making his way to the door. This lot will power me up, no problem. We're going to take this bastard. Dan snorted and pulled the door open, then stepped to the doorway as Freddy and Lisa lined up at the counter. You guys set, he said. Freddy grinned at him. Aye, cool. It's a great day for it. Lisa clasped her hands together and flashed Dan a toothy grin. All right, I'll get you outside, Dan said and stepped out into the street. Everything all right, Maggie? He said to the redhead kneeling by her bike. She prodded a finger against her front tyre. Yeah, great. Has Tony got everything? I should think so. He's bringing half the shop. Maggie smiled and stood up. She placed her helmet onto her head and started to fasten the strap under her chin. You've done this hill before, right? She said. Dan walked toward the coloured row of mountain bikes propped up against the wall. Yeah, it's pretty tough, but it'll be worth it once we get up there. It's going to be a beautiful evening. I'm confident we'll do it, said Maggie. Dan grasped the handlebars of his bike and wheeled it to the edge of the pavement. Aye, as long as nobody stuffs their face before we get halfway there. The shop door clattered open and Tony came marching out, swinging a bulging white plastic carrier bag. Major Tony reporting for duty, sir! He laughed as he approached. Let's get ready to rock. Dan held a raised thumb in Tony's direction. The others might not be as experienced as himself, but if they all kept in fine spirits, they would surely make it to the top of the hill in about two, two and a half hours. Maggie was helping Tony squeeze the carrier bag into his rucksack as Freddy and Lisa emerged from the shop with their own supplies, squabbling and jostling each other, but stocked up and ready to go. Dan was determined that everyone enjoyed themselves today. He was going to the top regardless but it felt good to be part of a group sharing an experience. He couldn't wait to see their faces when they stood triumphant on top of the hill and cast their eyes over the serene, sun-dappled landscape. Lisa was the first to pull up alongside Dan ready to go. Freddy's being a big baby, but don't worry about him. He'll be all right once he gets going. Yeah, it's fine, said Dan, and looked over his shoulder to see Freddy hurl his helmet against the wall. The plastic cracked and fell away from one side. He wouldn't be wearing that today. Stupid fucking thing, fuck it, I don't need it. Freddy snatched at his bike and swung it around, through the air, to the side of the road. He threw a heavy leg over the saddle and rolled up behind Lisa. She turned and glowered at him. Just cool it, will ya? And don't blame me if you fall and split your head open. That's the best place for Freddy to land on his big fat head, Tony called over as he mounted his bike. Fuck off. Freddy lowered his head and focused on his foot, kicking at the pedal as though attempting to scrape loose some imagined clod stuck fast to his heel. Don't worry about that, idiot. Me and Mags are with you all the way, Danny boy.
Tony slowly wheeled past Freddy, flashed him a smug grin, then swiftly sprung his legs into action and took off pedaling hard down the street. Come on, you suckers, they heard him say as he sped away. Wanker, muttered Freddy. Dan made a quick check over both shoulders to make sure everyone was all right. All right, let's go, he said, and eased off at a steady enough pace that the spluttering Freddy wasn't made to trail too far behind. There it is. Everybody all right so far? Dan had stepped off his bike and stood with one hand on the handlebar as the other wiped a thick film of sweat from his brow. In front of him, a thin dirt track wound upward, thick green grass on either side and beyond that, trees spread out around the main of the hill like a thick spike belt, straining at the sheer bulk of the earth beneath it. Oh no, give me a minute. Freddy was on his knees in the grass, his face a burning red bulb. Tony laid his bike onto its side and walked up with Maggie to where Dan stood. This is it. Ha, doesn't look so tough. Yeah, nothing to a super cyclist like you, eh? Maggie rolled her eyes. Roll your eyes you may, but I will be king of the hill. Dan let out a chuckle. He was pleased Tony was still so enthusiastic, and at this point, he was thinking Freddy's loathing of Tony might not be such a bad thing if simple rivalry was what it took to motivate him. Anyone need a drink before we go again? Lisa waved a clear plastic bottle, and Freddy jumped to his feet to snatch it from her. He yanked the top off and started guzzling down the cool, liquid contents. Lisa stepped after him and gripped the sides of the bottle with both hands. Whoa, enough, enough. Save some for when we get to the top. Freddy let the bottle fall from his lips as she ripped it from him. Water ran down his chin. If we get to the top, he said, breathing heavily, my legs are fucked. Lisa shoved the bottle back into her rucksack. What happened to your juice? You bought a big bottle. Drank it. I was dying of thirst. It's too bloody hot. Tony had returned to his bike and pulled it upright. Come on, Freddy. Chin up, son. You're getting more exercise today than you've had in your entire life. Maggie and Lisa let out a little laugh, but Freddy silenced them with an angry glare. Aye, all right, you buggers. I'm ready. Let's go. Come on. He grabbed his bike and marched with it up the hill, past where Dan had stopped. Dan turned to the others. You can push it if you like, but I'm going to cycle on for a bit. It's not too steep yet. Tony swung his leg over the saddle. Yeah, come on, on your bikes. The girls followed suit, and soon the four of them passed Freddy as they made their way steadily up the pitted track. Dan sucked the air in through his nostrils, almost buzzing on the freshness of it. His lungs felt regenerated with every breath. They shouldn't have any problems in that department. It was when the legs started to burn that they would really feel pushed. He glanced at his watch. 6.30, still a good three hours of sunlight at least, plenty time to get up, down and off to the pub to celebrate their achievement for the rest of the night. The going was tough. Dan had warned them it would be, and soon Maggie and Lisa were forced to climb from their bikes and continue on foot. Dan assured them he would be waiting at the top and pressed on with Tony right up alongside him. A huge grin was spread across Tony's face the whole time, defying the sweat that poured from him and the pain that must surely now have been searing through his legs. The only way is up, he said, staring straight ahead. Dan didn't reply. He knew better than to get into a conversation with Tony and waste all his breath on talk. They were well out of sight of the others when a man's scream came from back down the hill. Dan slammed on the brakes and set a foot on the ground to steady himself. That was Freddy, he said. Tony had not stopped, but called back over his shoulder. 
He's probably fallen and put his hand in cow shit. Come on, Danny, we're on a mission here. I'm going to go back down a bit and check everything's all right. Suit yourself, loser. I'll be lying in the grass at the top basking in my glory. See you there. Dan turned his bike around and headed back down the hill. As he came around a long lift curve, he could see Lisa, Maggie and Freddy standing around their bikes in the middle of the path. Freddy was waving his arms around and pointing toward the grass on his right. They all turned as they heard Dan approaching and Maggie rushed toward him. Freddy's freaking out. He saw something in the grass, an animal or something. Dan eased to a halt. What do you expect? This is the countryside. This one didn't die of natural causes, Dan. Freddy stomped toward him. He was trembling and Lisa was tugging at his wrist in an attempt to placate him. If it's dead, what are you moaning about? said Dan. I went in the grass to take a piss, Freddy continued, but oh Christ, it's disgusting. Maggie, can you hold my bike for me? You better show me what you're getting all worked up about, Freddy. It's there, Freddy pointed into the undergrowth ahead. Where? Right bloody there, can't you see it? Dan's eyes finally settled on the curve of a hump that lay partially obscured by the long grass. It was the dirty white carcass of a sheep. The excited cawing of crows circled above him seemed to increase in number and volume as he approached. It's just a sheep, Freddy, got lost from the flock and died out here, don't be such a... Dan stood over the dead sheep trying to understand why there was no head where a head should be. Instead, the body tapered to an abrupt point, the twisted, maggot-ridden stump of a neck caked in rusty blood, a meeting place for an incessant halo of flies. What kind of animal would do that, said Freddy, keeping his distance. Dan didn't reply as he turned away, the stench of rotting flesh kicking the fresh country air aside and charging into his face. Freddy turned to Lisa and Maggie. I know what kind of animal would do this. A human one, a crazy hill-stocking nutter. Freddy, Lisa said, that's enough. She smiled weakly at Maggie. Dan had made his way back to the path. No need to get hysterical, Freddy. It's simple. The sheep died here and some animal chewed the head off. It's not pretty, but that's nature. Yeah, right, said Freddy. Well, I'm not taking any chances. From now on, we'll stick together as a group. I don't want to be set upon by some psychopath or a pack of rabid foxes. Maggie stepped back as Dan took his bike from her. Where's Tony? she said. He went on ahead. I think he was in the zone, didn't want to stop. He'll be waiting for us at the top. Great, he's gonna love this, said Freddy. Maybe we shouldn't tell him. He'll just take the piss. Yeah, let's just forget about it. It's a lovely day, let's not let this ruin it. Maggie lifted her bike up and climbed onto the seat. Let's all cycle for a bit. We don't want to leave Tony waiting too long. Don't we? Freddy muttered. But the others ignored him and pushed off, Dan leading the way. Make sure you've got it in first gear, Dan said. We want to get this done today. It was a hard ride to the top, and Freddy, Lisa and Maggie all struggled, alternating between cycling and pushing until it was all they could do to drag their bikes up the hill, bodies doubled over, faces pink and gleaming. The final part of the hill was a rock-encrusted mound, which could only be tackled on foot. Dan reached the foot of the mound first and dropped his bike into the grass. He cast his eyes back down the hill absorbing the view of the town below. It looked like it belonged to another world. He called out for Tony. Where is he? I can't see him. Maggie threw her bike down by Dan's. Lisa and Freddy were struggling along a few yards behind. Ha! Freddy pointed to the peak of another hill a few miles away. 
He's probably taken a wrong turn and ended up on the top of that one. He'll be around here. Probably went exploring, said Dan. I'll take a walk round the other side. I'll come with you. All right, Maggie, just mind your step. You guys okay staying here? Aye, don't worry about me. I'm not going to run to the top and plant my flag, Freddy replied, and he sat down heavily in the grass, Lisa dangling the near-empty water bottle in front of his sweaty face. Dan followed the curve of the hill at a slow pace, ensuring that each step was well lodged in the grassy part of the hill before taking the next. As they made their way around, Maggie called out from behind him, Tony, we're here, come on! A thin voice seemed to call out in reply, but it floated across the open hillside and Dan couldn't determine where it had come from. Maggie jabbed a finger into his back. What was that? Was that Tony? Where is he? Shh, quiet so I can hear. Help! The voice was definite this time, and Dan began scrambling forward, his feet stepping on uneven rocks that regularly gave way and plummeted down the hillside. He fell to his knees a few times but bounced back up before the thought of following the rocks down the hill could stick in his mind. When he reached the opposite side of the hill, Dan burst onto a small flat of grass. Tony, where are you? He cried. Dan, I'm down here, help me! Dan walked to the edge of the hill and peered over. A steep, slippery descent ended some twenty feet down from him. Among a large group of flat rocks lay Tony, on his back, staring straight up. His left leg was twisted underneath his body, and he reached out an unsteady hand. Dan, I fucked up. It's okay, man. Just hold tight, I'm coming down. I'm not going anywhere. Dan found a section of the hill he thought would give him reasonable footing for a descent, then, keeping his knees bent, he crept over the edge and half slid, half scurried his way down to the bottom. As he made his way over the rocks toward Tony, Maggie appeared at the edge of the drop. Oh my God, Tony, said Maggie. She dropped to her knees, hands snatching at the grass. Are you all right, baby? Dan, is he all right? I don't know, just wait. Cheers for the vote of confidence, Danny, Tony coughed. Dan knew that the look on his face told Tony all he needed to know. It had been a bad fall. He knelt beside Tony and placed a hand softly on his shoulder. Can you feel your leg, the left one? Dan, I can't feel anything. Maggie started screaming. Maggie, go and tell Freddy and Lisa to get help. Hurry! Dan shouted and turned back to his friend. Tony, mate, we're not supposed to move you. We'll have to wait for help. No, I can't stay here, man. You can't leave me here. It's okay, it's okay. I'm not going anywhere. What the hell happened, man? I was up on the hill. I carried my bike up there. I wanted to show you. I, th I think it was a gust of wind, so strong. Then the rock gave way. Oh God, Dan, I couldn't stop myself. It's all right, don't think about it now. We're going to get you out of here. His watch said it had gone past eight, and as Dan's eyes searched the sky, he knew they had little over an hour before the sun was on its way out, and they would find themselves blundering through the countryside in pitch dark. Dan! It's all right, buddy, Maggie's gone to phone for help. My leg's fucked, you've got to get it out of there. I don't know, I can't, I can't move you, it might make things worse. Dan, my leg, I'm gonna fucking lose it. All right, all right. Dan raised himself slowly to his feet, fingers twitching. He took a deep breath. There was a lot of blood under Tony. It pooled across the rock, his trousers were soaked in it, and his right hand dangled awkwardly in a thick, dark puddle. Dan stepped over him and squatted down on the rock, 
There was blood flowing from Tony's left knee and the lower part of the leg was bent up sharply beneath his thigh. As soon as Dan's fingers brushed the fabric of Tony's trouser leg, Tony started screaming. Dan pulled back a little and Tony turned to stare at him with mad feverish eyes. Just fucking do it! The whole process dragged on, although Dan worked furiously, frantic for an end to the screams of agony that filled his ears. As the blood drenched his palms, Dan turned his head, unable to look at the shattered mess of Tony's knee until finally he wrenched the whole leg free and it flopped loose onto the bed of stone. Tony's screams gradually became whimpers, his rapid breathing matched only by Dan's own as he stared down at his bloody palms. Tony, you okay? Tony groaned quietly. His eyelids fluttered, but if he could hear Dan, he didn't respond. Dan! Maggie's voice came from up the hill, and after a few seconds her face appeared over the edge of the incline. Freddie and Lisa are heading down now. How is he? He's unconscious but alive. Oh God, what are we going to do? We need to get him out of here. We have to hope Freddie and Lisa get to someone soon, he said, eyeing the swift march of the hands on his watch face. They'll get help. I'm coming down, I'm coming down, Tony. Maggie pulled back from the edge. Go along to where it's not as steep, Dan called to her and then knelt by the motionless Tony. His eyes were closed and his breathing was shallow. Don't worry, man, you rest now. Help is on the way. He got to his feet as Maggie hurried toward them. Maggie, you stay with him. I'm going to go back to the bikes and get some things. I'll see if I can find something to wrap around that leg. There's a blanket in Tony's bag. Okay, I'll get it. Just try to keep him comfortable. I'll be back as quick as I can. Dan snatched up the bag and tore the zip open. He pulled the red tartan blanket out in one hard tug, sending the rest of the bag's contents tumbling to the ground. He threw the blanket over his shoulder and squatted to sift through the fallen items. Chocolate, bottled water and a torch. He hoped they wouldn't need to use one of those, but he scooped up all the items and jammed them into his pockets. A loud clatter punched the air behind him and Dan spun to see a tangled heap of metal bounce off the jagged rocks and tumble into the grass a few feet from him. The flecks of red and yellow that decorated the gnarled frame identified this mess as Tony's mountain bike. He turned and stared up to the top of the mound. The sun was low and the shadows were being cast among the rocky outcrops, but Dan could swear that he saw something wobble and shift at the top of the hill. An angular shape seemed to flick out at the sky and then was gone. Dan held his breath. What had he seen? Was it a man? It must have been. How else could Tony's bike have got smashed up like that? But why? And then he thought of Freddy and the look of hatred in his eyes when he looked at Tony. Had he really been that strong? With the blanket tucked under his arm, Dan made his way back round the mound. Only this time his eyes were not fixed ahead but at the top of the hill. He was locked onto it for any sign of movement, but nothing stirred there. By the time he had made his way round to the grassy ledge, he had convinced himself they had not seen anything up there. Tony must have carried his bike to the top of the mound and after he fell off one edge the bike sat for a bit and then got blown down the other side getting trashed in the process. Enough had gone wrong in the trip so far and under these circumstances Dan was happy to accept this explanation as plausible. Maggie, I got the blanket and the other stuff. There was no reply and Dan crept closer to the edge of the drop. Maggie! At the bottom lay a big flat red rock. Maggie and Tony were gone. Dan sprang along the ledge and threw himself feet first down the hill. His throat felt tight 
as his fingers clawed at the dirt controlling his descent. As soon as his feet hit the rock below, he was running to the spot where Tony's broken body had lain. Dan clambered onto the rock and searched the horizon for movement. Foliage casually swayed in the distance, but he couldn't see a trace of anybody. He cupped his hands to his mouth and called out their names until his throat went dry and clammed up on him. He pulled the water bottle from his pocket and drank the majority of it in one go, then tossed the bottle aside and leaped down from the rock, heading forward. He began to thrash his way through the thick mass of heather that made descent down this side of the hill a ridiculous task. He'd made his way about a hundred yards down the hill from the rocks when he'd lost his footing and was propelled on his backside across a slippery patch of mud. There was a crack as he fell and a solid object slammed against his thigh as he slid down the hill, Heather scratching at his face. And as he put his hands up to shield it, he suddenly felt his feet shoot out into thin air. Before Dan could fly right over the edge, he had snatched at the thick rope of roots protruding from the earth. He had the brief thought of grabbing a snake and watching it rear up and attack him, but the roots held, and he pressed his stomach hard against the ground as his feet scrambled for a foothold. He could hear the creak and tear of the roots as they took the strain of his weight, but he dared not look over his shoulder to see how far he may drop. As he hammered his toes into the dirt and slowly began to ease himself back up the ledge, he looked up the hill right to the top of the rocky mound. Never made it to the top after all. And then, in the descending gloom of the late evening, the shadows on the top of the hill began flickering and shifting again. A large dark shape bobbed and dipped, then suddenly rose tall and a fluttering red object was thrown high into the air. A shirt? Like the one Maggie had worn? Dan's fingers clawed in desperation at the dirt as he finally managed to throw a leg up over the ledge and rolled to safety. He hauled himself to his feet and started running back up the hill, his mind ablaze with questions. Maggie must be at the top of the hill, but why? Was she the one who had thrown Tony's bike down? If she was up there, Tony must be with her. But how did she get him up there before Dan could return to the scene of the accident? How much longer until help will come? Dan kicked and stomped his way back across the heather, dragged himself up the grassy incline and stepped onto the rocky mound. Footholds were random and unsteady and by the time he was halfway up he was panting hard. The light had faded considerably by this point. They should have all made their way down by now, exhausted but happy, triumphant. Against the backdrop of the ashen sky, Dan could still focus on the outline of the hill's peak. It appeared desolate and still. Maggie! Tony! Please, where are you? The only sound was the wind as it picked up and whistled across the hilltop. Dan's forearms felt the chill as he clambered over the last few rocks to the top of the hill. The peak was a stone-scattered plateau about 20 feet in diameter. Rough yellow grass sprawled across it and in the centre a large dark circle slowly stretched out of its edges. Dan held his breath as he stepped forward and dipped a finger into the grass. It was wet and warm. He brought the finger up in front of his face and wrestled with his other hand to pull the torch from his trouser pocket. He held the torch and pressed the chunky rubber button, a click but no light. Shit. He shook the torch and there was a rattle as the shattered pieces of the lens flew loose into the grass. His attention was suddenly seized by a light tapping sound, and he squatted down low to listen. A steady tap-tap-tapping. What could it be? Someone unable to communicate verbally trying to make themselves known? His eyes searched the outer rim of the plateau, 
and there, on a box-shaped rock on the opposite side, a crow sat pecking at a strip of something it held firm with one foot against the rock. Dan slowly began to sidestep around the edge of the peak. His eyes were fixed on the bird as he moved closer and closer. What have you got there? he said. He lunged at the bird and it let out a loud squawk and flew off. Whatever it had been pecking fell from the rock and Dan bent down closer. It looked like a fat strip of uncooked bacon, wet and raw. Dan rose up, fear now had him fully in its clammy grip. He had blood on his finger. He knew it, but if this dark circle was blood, there was so much. He started running down the mound, leaping over boulders and skipping round toothed outcrops as he made his way toward where they had left their bikes. Dan's and Maggie's both still lay on the grass and Dan snatched his up and ran with it to the edge of the hill where the path began its long winding route back down, back to civilization. He was running at a fair pace and as he leaped onto the seat he fought to steady himself as the bike careered over the bumpy ground. Dan barely had time to get his feet on the pedals before he was being launched down the hill, a virtual passenger as his mind fought frantically to focus itself on a positive solution, a way out for all of them. Was that still possible? As soon as he entered the wooded part of the hill, the darkness intensified. The trees threatened to topple forward and shut off his path completely. He gulped down mouthfuls of air as he struggled to keep the rising tide of panic at bay. I must focus now. I've got to get off this fucking hill. The path took a swerve to the left and in the gloom, Dan was upon the curve before he had time to react. His fingers clawed at the brakes, but the wheels jolted out to the right and the bike was whipped out of his control. He jammed his feet down into the dirt, but this only succeeded in throwing his weight forward as he was forced to leap from the bike as it plunged into the long grass. Dan came down hard, face first, onto the edge of the path. The breath was knocked out of him as he landed, and his palms buried in the dirt. He lay still for a second waiting, praying for his breath to return. Everything was quiet save for the clicking of the spinning wheels, his bike down by the edge of the wood. No, 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 no. Dan's breath rushed back into him as the cries from the wood reached his ears. What? He pushed himself onto his knees. The voice echoed out again. Please, oh God, please. Freddy, no, it can't be. He went down ages ago. He had no reason to go into the wood. Why would he? A woman's piercing shriek tore out of the wood, louder than Freddy's voice had been. Her fear seemed more immediate. Dan felt bitter sickness rising in his throat. Lisa? Oh no, why? He stood and faced the edge of the wood. Freddy, Lisa, I'm here, come toward me if you can, he shouted. He listened for a response, but all he could hear was more damn birds and their relentless caw-cawing. Stepping toward the trees, his feet dragged through the grass as it swept around his knees. Lisa, it's Dan, can you hear me? Help me, Dan! Please! Her voice sounded louder, this time closer. Dan put his hand on the trunk of the first tree and crept a few feet into the edge of darkness. Lisa, I'm here. Just keep coming over this way. There was the sound of snapping branches and the debris of the woodland floor crunching under heavy, determined steps. Dan could hear Lisa somewhere in among the black undergrowth in front of him. She was crying out in wordless fear with every step, every breath. Lisa, I'm right over here. Can you... Can you see me? Please, I'm over here. Dan flapped his arms by his side. Dan, I see you. 
Get me out of here. Lisa's words were followed by a huge crash as something heavy ploughed through the undergrowth. It sounded to Dan as though the trees were being rudely pushed aside and a flock of birds shot off into the sky as Lisa started screaming. Dan took a few more steps into the wood. He clenched his fist and roared out, Lisa! Her cry ceased, but the thrashing in the trees continued. Dan dashed forward, arms stretched out in front of him, and was halted when a thick branch slashed across his face. His head was thrown back, and he felt something snag on his trousers and pull away with a tear. He fell to his knees and clutched his hands to his nose. His eyes were closed, but his vision was filled with a blinding sheet of white light as pain rocketed into his skull. He felt sure his whole face had been smashed in. The sound of movement in the trees faded as Dan dared touch his face with his fingers and slowly opened his eyes. There was a gash across the bridge of his nose, from which blood ran freely, but the initial agonising pain was beginning to subside. He staggered to his feet and headed back out of the wood. Pressing the edge of his t-shirt to his nose, he picked up his bike and dragged it through the grass back to the path. All of this had led him here, fleeing for his life from God knows what. Something bad had happened to Lisa. Something bad had surely happened to all of them. Dan was certain he had heard Maggie's voice cry out in pain and desperation from the wood as he sped through the darkness. But how could he stop? He couldn't do anything for Lisa. He couldn't do anything for any of them. A hill-stalking nutter, Freddy had warned. But how could one man be responsible for all this? The way ahead for Dan was now so black he felt almost as though his trust was in the bike to guide him down, to follow the path straight and through, avoiding all obstacles. Dan could see the glowing orange lights of the town ahead of him when the front wheel hit the log. There was no time to react as the bike slammed to a halt, the front wheel folding almost in half as Dan left his seat and was pitched headlong through the air. His hands went out in front of him as he attempted to brace himself for a painful landing, but the only pain he felt was in his shoulder as sharp points pierced the skin and sunk deep into his flesh. Dan let out a scream as he was lifted into the air and snatched wildly at his shoulder and the thick talons embedded there. Higher and higher he was swept up, and as he craned his neck to the left, a blank silver dish as large as his head stared back at him. Around it, he saw great black feathers. Dan gazed down in frozen wonder as the treetops began to rush by, and the hill quietly faded into the night. That was Robin Braid's The Hill, as read by J.K. Shepler. J.K. Shepler was born in Texas and raised in Northern California, among the rolling hills of the Coast Range and the oaks of the Gold Country. He returned to Texas for secondary and post-secondary education. He attended the University of Houston, and someone decided to give him a Bachelor of Science degree with highest honors in anthropology. He was hyped to pursue a master's degree in experimental archaeology at Exeter, but decided to retire, thus sparing the British from his accents. He is a two-stripe brown belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu under Tony Torres Aponte, 
and haunts various local museums where he sometimes contributes to historical exhibitions or simply loiters. He surfs, throws knives, and scratches out some visual art. He is slated to finish some creative projects sometime in this decade, including illustrating a children's book, and if he ever wakes up, a bunch of other stuff. He sometimes sells fine woolen scarves and old ties, and somewhere people buy his t-shirt designs and photographs. He, ahem, rarely, pens brief movie reviews, which are written in some sort of bizarre dialect at downthemoviehole.blogspot.com. Mr. Shepler has opened for major touring acts in various bands, produced music videos, acted, and has been a general pain in the backside. He is fortunate to be the son of artist-educator parents, and he gives thanks. His parents gave him love and taught him to love learning and to be like the warriors and renaissance men and women of old. Artistic, creative, thoughtful, honorable, capable, and well-armed. Thank you, J.K. Well, children of the night, the hour is late, and we've run out of stories to tell. For now. If you've ever considered supporting us on Patreon, but haven't pulled the trigger, there's no better time than now to truly make a difference. We have big plans for Tales to Terrify, and we can't do it without your support. And remember, if you're an existing supporter, to switch your payment to our new Patreon account at patreon.com slash tales to terrify, where 100% of your contribution goes toward helping produce and grow our podcast. Want another way you can help without opening your wallet? Like us or leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews help us by keeping our show on the charts for new listeners to discover. Our show is produced by editors Seth Williams and Pete Morsellino, and myself, Drew Sepistini. Theme music by Diane Severson, and website by Josh Lightsey. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no-derivatives license. Join us again next week as we infect your soul with more Tales to Terrify. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.